I'm Dermot Hussey. Welcome to Riffin Radio, the podcast. It's a collection of interviews with artists from various genres, spanning three decades and giving more context to the music we love. Today, George Benson is as highly regarded a guitarist as he is a singer. It wasn't always that way, however. He had to convince audiences that he was equally great a guitarist as he was a singer. I spoke to George Benson about both in 1996. You have an amazing consistency to be able to achieve maximum musical expression with an economy of technique. How did you develop that facility? I guess I learned it the hard way. Uh, it started with a statement that was made by the late and great Wes Montgomery. He was doing a, a blindfold test. That means, you know, hearing the artist uh, without uh, knowing who it was you were listening to and identifying who it was. And uh, after hearing the piece of music, he said, oh, that's George Benson. And at that time, I was about 22 years old. He said, you know, he's really going to be a, a great artist. He said, I like his sound. He said, but when he slows down, <laughs> he's really going to be great. And, and that played on my mind. I was saying, well, what, what is he saying? Because I thought, you know, the more notes you played, you know, the more technique you showed, you know, the greater you were. But it showed me something. And then I listened to him and I realized that he was a very economical man. He made the same statement, very powerful, with less notes. So, so it really helped me. What lessons did you learn from Wes Montgomery and Charlie Christian, both of whom influenced you? Well, Charlie Christian, uh, his placements of notes uh, gave it a different kind of feeling. You know, he swung very hard, but it's where he placed the notes because he didn't just play a consistent, you know, eighth note or sixteenth note uh, uh, statement. But he played some polyrhythmic things, and where he put it caused the music to swing very hard. It got you involved. Another thing about his playing was uh, his tonality, his the guitar voice, uh, the, the tone that he used was another way to bring you in. It was so warm and big at the same time, uh, but it was never dull sounding. It wasn't um, uh, something that had a, uh, a lot of bass on it or anything like that. Uh, it sounded like a natural guitar, but it was big. All my life I've been trying to achieve that sound. I think that's how Wes Montgomery got drawn, you know, was drawn into his playing too, and many, many others, because he influenced most of the guitar players that I knew in my lifetime. Uh, he still is uh, among the very top of my favorite players in the world, starting with Django Reinhardt, and uh, then uh, um, uh, Charlie Christian, and then Grant Green, and then Wes Montgomery, and Kenny Burrell, and, uh, and people like that, Tao Farlow, that kind of thing. In the mid-70s, you became a superstar in the mold of an earlier jazz great, Nat Cole. Do you see a parallel between yourself and Nat Cole? I can sympathize with some of the problems that Ned had because uh, toward the end he, he had to give up sitting behind the piano. He kept reminding the musicians of how great he was because he was truly great on the piano. And, um, but there was a dilemma there. There was a problem because uh, his biggest audience was uh, the audience he built with his voice and all the great songs that he introduced to people. 
So the musicians, if he never sang, musicians would say, oh, hey, I don't care if he sings or not, you know, uh, but to the world. He was one of the greatest, if not the greatest vocalist uh, ever. And to me, uh, being a musician singer, I can empathize with his wife who said, uh, Nat, you are the world's greatest singer. Sing, don't play. And then the argument will subside. You won't feel the, the pressure and the punishment that comes from the terrible statements that people make about, you know, about your singing, you know. Simply because they didn't want to hear him sing, they tried to downplay his singing. They do the same thing to me. I am no Nat King Cole uh, vocally, don't get me wrong, and I never tried. Well, yeah, I shouldn't say I never tried to be. When I was a kid, he was my favorite singer. But, you know, I got started so late as a vocalist getting recognition. You know, my first hit record came when I was 33 years old, you know. So you didn't have to, in fact, downplay your guitar playing while becoming a singer. I refused to give up my guitar, and that has created a... A big controversy, but I think we're over the storm now. People have said, well, no matter what we say, he's not going to give up his guitar, and he's not going to give up his singing. Everywhere I go, people people say uh, either one or the other. They say, hey, some people don't know that I even play guitar. That's amazing. Uh, but there are some people who don't know I play guitar, and they say, hey, when I came to your concert, I came to hear your singing, but I was amazed at what you do with the guitar. I didn't know you played guitar. And I said, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it shows that there's a lot to do. Um, a person doesn't have to lay down, you know, thinking that they have conquered this world because there's always someone, uh, some more people, you know, who, who are, are out there to hear whatever you have to offer. Your increased stature came after your singing on the album, Breezing. Might it have come earlier? if you've been able to record as a singer earlier? Well, I had done some things as a vocalist, but nothing as powerful as uh, this masquerade, which was on the Breeze album, and not with a producer who respected me as a vocalist. Tommy LaPuma, who produced that whole album, instrumentally and the one vocal, he had heard me sing five years earlier, and he said, George, he said, I can't believe that people are not recognizing what you do vocally. He said, because I heard you sing and I love your voice. And I selected him as my producer based on what he said to me that day. And he was the man who produced the Breezing album. And, uh, and he selected the song, This Masquerade, and convinced me that that song would, would go over well with my audience. How do you evaluate the periods of working with Creed Taylor, which began at A&M and then kind of blossomed in a way on CTI, and the period of working with Tommy LePuma, on Warner Brothers and now GRP? Well, uh, CTI had a concept uh, that was very, very good, taking the jazz artist and trying to bridge that gap to the, the general public. Uh, the one thing that I thought that, that Creed Taylor didn't accomplish was allowing us to clean up the rough edges of what we did. His way of cleaning up was to put a pad over top or underneath the music and to give it a modern sound with strings and horns. But I always thought that um, what we were doing underneath being very raw, because we're used to playing, you know, just flat out improvisation against whatever, you know, is uh, the music is all about. It puts us at a disadvantage. Sometimes we overpower people with our stuff. It goes over the head, the general public I'm talking about, not the jazz musician. But since what he was trying to accomplish was, was uh, um, aimed at the overall audience, I always thought that it was a little bit strange uh, way to approach it. Uh, 
He was very successful with Jimmy Smith, Walk on the Wild Side, uh, West Montgomery. Uh, but these guys were already polished up, ready for that, ready to go. They had already run the gamut of the jazz world. And so when he said, give these things up, let's go for the sound that people love and know and accept already, and then put the pad and all the wonderful things on top, then it was a much easier job. But I was still in my raw stage. I was 26 years, 24, and I wasn't about to to slow down. I was, uh, had all these ideas and power, but they were very rough. By the time I got to uh, Warner Brothers Records uh, several years later, like I said, I was 33 years old, I had already um, accomplished much of what I wanted to do uh, in the jazz world and made a, a name for myself among my peers and had respect for people. But I still longed for having that recognition from the general public. They just didn't know who I was. And Tommy LaPuma, who loves music, he had something that uh, a lot of producers don't have. He gets totally involved in the project, but he's the greatest sequencer of any producer that I've worked with. He knows, he goes home and he sits with the 10 songs or whatever they are, or six songs in this case, and he plays one song after the other until he finds which one follows the other one better. And he'll do that until he comes up with the combination that makes the most sense. That's why when you put on the Breezin album, you couldn't take it off because it was like a story. It went from A to Z. And he does that better than anybody I know. You once expressed uh, <clears throat> ambitions for an acting career. Is that still an unfulfilled ambition? It's something I love doing. And it's a, there's a great satisfaction of, of coming out of yourself and being somebody else for a while. It's a... It's, it's an incredible feeling, you know. But um, at this stage of my life, can I afford to be in, on a set 12 to 16 hours a day? So I had to make that decision. So I, I didn't pursue an acting career, even though I was told that I had some potential there as an actor, you know. Uh, I was grateful for the opportunity to do a few things, uh, <clears throat> but um, I think that at this point in my life, I would not like to give up spending time with my family and, you know, that kind of thing. But what I did learn was how to judge other actors, to know when they are, you know, at top of their form and to, to know a budding actor when I see one, you know. So it has helped me, uh, even though I didn't pursue it, I'm glad that I did get an opportunity to study acting. For someone who has recorded so prolifically, um, are there any other unrealized ambitions as a, a guitarist and a singer? When I went to Spain recently, uh, well, a couple of years ago, I played with Paco De Lucia, John McLaughlin, uh, Larry Coriel, and a few other great players there. It gave me a desire to go back to the roots of guitar. Even though the Moors invented the guitar, it was the Spanish who made it famous, who explored it. So Spain is the place. Uh, if you want to get immersed in guitar, you got to go to Spain. <laughs> uh, they don't have all of the guitar players, but they have the essence of what the guitar was all about uh, from its very beginnings. Um, so by hanging there and hearing, going back to the streets, hearing flamenco guitar, it shows me what I've missed. Uh, and uh, so since then, I've got me a couple of books out. And uh, although I don't think I can accomplish it in this lifetime, it's fun trying it. I mean, the acoustic style, the yes, flamenco style. And finger style, you know, with all of the wonderful flams and things that they do with their fingers that I think are so incredible. So that's your next project then? 
Uh, that's something I'm pursuing, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Riffin Radio with Dermot Hussey. Be sure to like us and subscribe. We put out a podcast a week. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram at R-I-F-F-I-N Radio, Facebook, Dermot Hussey, and check out our YouTube channel, Riffin Radio. <laughs>